0: President John Adams, prior to being a president, he worked as a lawyer, and in 1770, he had what some might call the difficult task of defending men who were British soldiers who fired upon the crowd during the Boston Massacre. Now it's recorded that at one point during the trial, he told the jury the following, he began by saying this, facts are stubborn things. He went on and he said, And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. That phrase, facts are stubborn things, is one that is rather well known. Um, his defense turned out to be a successful one. He ended up to defend those men successfully. And it would appear, though I'm not familiar with all the details and the intricacies of the trial, it would appear that he won the case based upon the evidence. And as we come to this psalm, there is clearly a sense, and you're going to see it early on, that there's a sense in which David is coming to the Lord and he's approaching the Lord in no uncertain terms, declaring, if you will, the facts of the proverbial case that he was bringing to the God of the universe. As you come into the psalm, you're going to see that David is, in one sense, like a plaintiff. And he's bringing charges against others. And there's a kind of courtroom feel, if you will, at least to the beginning part of the psalm. And in another sense, David is like one who is a defendant. And even as he's making a case against his enemies, he's making a case for his own deliverance from their accusations and from the consequences that would be rightly rendered to him if they were right. And he's doing all this based upon facts, based upon his innocence, and based upon their guilt. We'll see that as we get into the text, but first let's briefly consider the superscript. This is the first time that we're seeing this superscript in our study of the Psalms. It simply reads, a prayer of David. So this superscript is different than other ones. We're not told to whom this psalm was given, as we've seen in other cases, right? To the chief musician. We're not seeing that here. We're not told some context concerning the historical circumstances in which David found himself, like we were in Psalm 3. Though I think we can gather a little bit from the psalm concerning the historical context. If you were to ask me for my opinion, and note this is just my opinion, I think this psalm, if you had to say, where could it best be placed? I would think it could best be placed during the time in which David was on the run from King Saul. I think there are reasons within the Psalm as we study it to say that seems to be the best historical context for the psalm, but again that's a hypothesis, I can't say that with definitude. Um, as we get into the psalm, you're going to see that this psalm is it's amazing. I personally I liken this psalm to how I feel about Lauren. Uh, the longer that I spend married to Lauren, the the more I love her. We've talked about this. We've been married for a while, since 2007. And the longer that we spend together, it's like the more I appreciate her, the more I love her. And I'm not just saying that to say a nice husbandly thing at the beginning of a sermon. I'm saying that because that's honestly how I feel about this psalm. If you were to analyze my emotions, not that you need to, but I'm just saying, when I came into this psalm, I looked at it one way. And I had a certain level of excitement in teaching it. And as I have gone through it more and more, I've grown to love it more. And I hope that you will love this psalm, perhaps upon immediate onset um, today of studying it. It's a precious psalm. You're going to see in it an appeal for vindication. Uh, There's a tone of trust throughout the psalm. Uh, The psalm also ends with a glorious reminder of the saints' glorious hope. There's a lot to be seen in this psalm. And we'll see it, or at least as much as we can, today as we begin. And make our way through it. We begin in Psalm 17, verse 1, where we read Hear a just cause, O Lord, or O Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So if you or I find ourselves in the midst of tough times or tight straits, We might find some measure of comfort in the fact that as we've been going through Book 1 of the Psalter, which includes Psalms 1 through 41, that over and over again we see David going, if you will, from crisis to crisis. It just appears to keep happening. Now granted, we don't know the chronology of many of these Psalms, so some might fit into the same Time of reference, the same crisis time of reference. That same chronology for one crisis might be the same for another, but this was nonetheless a man who was acquainted with troubles. We know that as it concerns our Savior, Isaiah 53 says that he was a man who was acquainted with sorrows. We clearly see as we're studying through the Psalms that David was a man who was acquainted with troubles. And perhaps that was part of the providential mix that God used to make him a man well acquainted with prayer. And David, as we know, is identified in the Scriptures as a man who was a man after God's own heart. But one of the things that we keep seeing over and over again that he was also a man who was after God's ear. And I do think the both go together. That a man who is after God's heart, a woman who is after God's heart, will be a man or a woman who is after God's ear as well. And so we see David here beginning this psalm by essentially bringing his case to God. Hear a just cause, O Yahweh. This is the first of three imperatives that we're going to find in verse 1. So what does that tell us? That connotes a sense of urgency. So already we see that David is in a kind of desperate situation. We're in verse 1, and we just saw the first of three prayerful imperatives, if you will. He says, hear... A just cause, O Yahweh. Now the word for just could be rendered as righteous. Hear a righteous cause. Interestingly, that word just or righteous is actually the direct object. So it could read literally like this. Hear righteousness, O Yahweh. Or hear justice, O Yahweh. And the implication is that David is setting forth his just cause. Setting before God his righteousness. Now hang on, I'll explain what I mean and what I don't mean by that a little bit later as we make our way through the psalm. Clearly here, David believed he had a just cause, he had a righteous cause, so he appealed to the righteous judge of the universe, the God of heaven and earth. More important than how he would be identified or exonerated, so to speak, in the court of human opinion in one way or another, more important than that was that he would be identified as innocent, and vindicated in the sight of God. And so he appealed to God, and he appealed to that courtroom, as it were, with respect to this particular situation. When David said, if you look at the second line of verse 1, attend my cry, the idea is that he was seeking for God to give him earnest attention to his earnest plea. Attend to my cry. He is like a child in this moment, who in desperation cries for his or her parents, I mean, the language here, cry, kind of connotes that. It's a kind of ringing out of one's voice. Hear my cry. Attend to my cry. And one can imagine the earnest attention of devoted parents when they hear their child, their son or daughter scream. One can imagine that and the way they would attend to the needs of such a child. And in that creaturely reflection, we get a little bit of a glimpse of a perfect heavenly one where our Heavenly Father so attends and so hears the cries of His children. And given the fact that David knew his cause to be a just cause, he expected God's help and vindication, so he wrote, third line of verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So David is again, now he's asking God to hear him, but now he's saying that his prayer is not from deceitful lips. And so one layer of that is likely this. I'm praying to you, Lord, and what I'm setting forth, as I'm setting forth a case for my integrity, which we're really going to see in verses 3 through 5, he's essentially saying, I'm not lying about this. I'm not self-deceived. And he's not who some of his accusers made him out to be. He's not a deceitful man. So you hear this prayer, Lord, it's not coming from somebody who is marked by, characterized by, Deceit. I'm not what my enemies accuse me to be. And most immediately we get the idea, hear my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. So this isn't an outworking of self-deception, my prayer in this moment. Which suggests something rather scary. That sometimes perhaps our prayers could be an outworking of our own self-deception. Now to attempt to deceive God would be fruitless because nobody can deceive God. Right? God's not going to be deceived. God knows our thoughts. He could see our hearts. He knows all things perfectly. But it is a rather scary thought just to take a moment to say, wait a minute, my prayers can actually be an outworking of self-deception. You can imagine a scenario in which you're talking to God about somebody who offended you and you have a completely wrong view of the situation and you've mistaken the whole idea that you have offended them more than they have offended you. And you could be looking to God for vindication when really what you need is to apologize. See, there's all kinds of ways in which we could be self-deceived. And one of the ways to avoid that, we're going to see a little bit later on in the psalm. But David is saying here that his prayer was not an outworking of self-deception. It's not coming from deceitful lips. In Spurgeon's Treasury of David, one writer put it this way, speaking of ones who would pray from deceitful lips, uh, they have Jacob's voice but Esau's hands. They profess like saints but practice like Satan's. They have long prayers but short prayings. Honesty, an open confession of sin, a kind of continuous request for God to examine our hearts and to try our hearts is a great way to avoid that kind of praying and to practice true praying. You can pray, and I'll mention this verse again a little bit later on like David did in Psalm 26 verse 2, asking the Lord to examine you. He is the one, after all, who tries and searches the reins of the heart. You could ask him to examine you. You could ask him to bring to the surface things that you are missing. Well, as we go on, we see David continues and he prays in verse 2: Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on things that are upright. So, in other words, David didn't want his vindication to come and he probably knew it would be fruitless anyway if it were to come as a result of his own doings, as a result of the work of his own hands. He wanted it to come from God's presence. Let my vindication come from your presence. Meaning, essentially, let my vindication come from you. That's essentially what he means there. As though from a heavenly tribunal, you might say. I like how Alan Ross noted the word order at this point. He said, quote, The word order stresses this point. From your presence, my vindication, let it come forth. Now the word vindication could be understood as justice or sentence or verdict. And obviously David is expecting here a verdict of innocence. And again, the idea is that he wants the just judge of the universe to render his verdict. Whatever that might be, he expected nonetheless that the verdict would be in favor, in his favor. um, But he nonetheless looked for God to render the verdict. Second line of verse 2, he says, Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. The word for upright speaks of equity or things that are right. And David believed that he was innocent and he believed that his enemies were guilty. And he looked for God to kind of point that out by delivering him. And by stopping them from what they were trying to do, you say, what were they trying to do? You're going to find out a little bit later on in this psalm. They were trying to do harm to David and hurt David, and he's looking for God to vindicate him. What would vindication look like? It would look like deliverance. It would look like showing David to have been in the right and his enemies to have been in the wrong. Get some layers of the vindication that David was looking for here. But I want to just, I want to say this because I think this is helpful. How do you get to this point? Because David, at this point, is praying with a, a, quite an amount of confidence that he's in the right. Like, he's not wondering at this point. Like, I wonder if I'm right or if I'm wrong. You know, you kind of tell me, Lord, and figure it out. And other times we see David pray along those lines. If there's any offensive way in me, oh, Lord, you know, search me, know me, try my heart, and things like that. But here, he's come to a point where he, he's like, I, I know I'm in the right, and I'm looking for you to vindicate me. How do you get to that point? And I think we see how you get to that point in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Now, I want you to notice we're studying through the Psalm. If you were to look through verses 3 through 5, you're essentially seeing David make a case for his integrity. I know verse 5 looks like a prayer in our translation, but it could perhaps be better rendered as statements. We'll see that as we get there. So, David is basically making a case for his integrity, the beginning of which is found right here in verse 3. He says, he begins by saying, You have tested my heart. As the pulpit commentary notes, the word here essentially means tested or tried or examined. From what I understand, that's how the word is used most often. You've examined me. You've tried me. It talks about kind of deep scrutiny that God would render, that God's eyes have evaluated David well. Interestingly, the word can also be used, this word right here, the first line of verse 1, the word for tested, can be used with respect to, say, goldsmiths or silversmiths who would put the gold or silver into a fire so that the impurities would come to the surface, that the gold or silver would be tested to find out how good of a shape it was in. The impurities would come to the surface and be wiped off. So it can be used in that way as well. The word in the third line, the verb, in the third line of verse 3, look and you'll see it. You have tried me and have found nothing is used even more often with respect to goldsmiths and silversmiths and that kind of thing. Um, the first one, a couple of times. This one, uh, a number of times. So David is essentially saying that you have tested me. You've examined me. You've, you've looked me through and through. I have been like a piece of metal that has been put through the fire, as it were. You've tested me and you've seen that in regards to this issue, nothing has come to the surface that would suggest that I am at fault and that I am guilty here and that my enemies are right. Right? Because notice what he says at the end of verse 3. You have tried me, and you have found nothing. You have found nothing. Now let me offer a bit of clarification here, lest anyone get confused. David is not saying to the Lord, you've examined me, and you have found me to be sinless. That is not what David is saying. David is not appealing to God, saying, I have within myself an absolute righteousness. Righteousness. You've examined me, and you know I am perfectly righteous. Mm -mm -mm. David here is appealing to God with what you might identify as a relative righteousness. With respect to this situation, you have examined me, you have tested me, and with respect to this situation, you see that there is nothing in me that is guilty like my adversaries are accusing me of being guilty of. That is the idea here. He's not saying that he's sinless. He's saying that with respect to this situation, he's blameless. And you'll see David do that kind of thing in the Psalms. And if you don't know what's going on, you might think, wait a minute, David is appealing to God, saying that he's basically perfectly righteous and sinless? No, 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 not at all. But in this case, he is saying that he's blameless. Now, we looked at line one and line three of verse three, but take a look at line two. Line two, he says, You have visited me, in the night. You have visited me in the night. When you see that word visit, it often connotes a kind of divine, gracious condescension. A gracious divine condescension. That word is used in Genesis 21:1, and it speaks of Yahweh visiting Sarah and she conceived. That word is used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 16 when the Lord told Moses to tell the children of Israel that he had visited them and he had seen what had been done to them in Egypt. That word is used in the first chapter of Ruth when Naomi had heard that the famine had been broken and that the Lord had visited his people in the land of Judah by giving them bread. So this language, it's it's beautiful language. It speaks of a gracious, divine condescension. And David says that the Lord visited him in the night. It's as though the Lord inspected him in the night, in the dark, when no one else could see him, when the thoughts and recesses of David's heart and mind were open and laid bare before the Lord and not anyone else, when who David truly was was not on display for anyone else but for God. God had visited him in the night. And you look at the lines that surround this. the implication is you've seen, Lord, that I am without the guilt of which I am accused. Now, if this was written during the time in which David was on, during David's time of flight from Saul, The idea might be something like this. You've examined me, and you've seen me, you've visited me in the night, and you know that I haven't planned some sort of mutiny or uprising against Saul. That I don't don't have and haven't had evil intentions towards him. That might be the idea if this is the historical context. He didn't find in David's mind mutiny, rebellion, or mischief with relationship to Saul if that was the context historically. Now, by way of application, I want to ask you this. What do you think about when you are laying upon your bed at night? David spoke of those in Psalm 36, verse 4, who devise wickedness on their bed. So there's a whole bunch of people throughout this world, especially fallen men in one way or another, is going to be thinking on things that do not please God or devising mischief or wickedness while laying upon their beds David described himself in Psalm 63, verse 6, as one who meditated on God in the night watches. You know, you you might think of the time in between you putting your head on your pillow and falling asleep as kind of like wasted time. But it could be very precious time. It could be time in which you take a few moments to just invite the Lord to examine you. Maybe you meditate on divine truth. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. You know, going to bed could be a precious meeting time with the Lord. And I'm not discounting praying before bed, but I'm talking about when you're laying on your bed and when you put your head on your pillow, you can anticipate that as a precious meeting time with the Lord. I used to, when I... I don't know if it was when I first came across the concept of biblical meditation, but I loved the idea of trying to love the Lord with all my mind. And so I wanted to, when I went to bed, I wanted to think upon the Word of God, maybe think upon sermons or teachings that I was going to teach and so on. And I came to find that it was a joyous experience, but then I couldn't go to sleep. Because I just kept thinking on the Word. I'm like, when do you stop? Like, am I supposed to just fall asleep at some point? Because it seems that as long as I'm thinking upon the Word, I can't fall asleep. So I was in this little bit of a conundrum. So I'm not telling you to suffer insomnia as a result of meditating upon God's Word. But I am telling you to kind of use your time in between your head on your pillow and you falling asleep to think about God. Think about His Word. To invite His scrutiny. And to see if he brings anything to the surface. I think that a little meditation, biblical meditation, when you're thinking on biblical truth, and a little bit of cross-examination, when you're inviting God to scrutinize your actions or your motives, I think it can go a long way in your sanctification. So a little bit of meditation, a little bit of cross-examination before you go to sleep can go a long way in your sanctification. Well, to keep it really close to the context, you might say, if you're thinking that you're right about something, and you may very well be, and that somebody else is wrong about something, and they very well might be, let God examine your thoughts and your motives and the recesses of your heart, and you can pray like David, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Psalm 26, verse 2. The last line reads, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress." So contextually, this reinforces the idea that his prayer wasn't deceitful and that he was telling the truth. But more broadly, this speaks of David's intentional commitment to not sin with his words. I have purpose. That speaks to a kind of resolve. I've resolved, I've committed to not transgressing with my mouth. Perhaps you think of James chapter 3 verse 2. That if somebody doesn't sin with their mouth, they are to use language from uh, King James rendering, a perfect man. But the idea there is a mature man. That our Christian maturity is is shown as we learn to steward our tongues better. Uh, You might say also that David wasn't going to sin in the way in which he was being sinned against. David was being sinned against in more ways than one. People wanted to kill him, as we're going to see a little bit later on in the psalm, but people were also lying about him. People were using their tongues in wicked ways. For example, in 1 Samuel 24 verse 9, David appealed to Saul saying, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? That shows us you can do a lot of harm with your tongue. I mean, think about it. Think of the power that is in your tongue. Somebody, I'm not inviting anybody to do this. It would be bad. Somebody can ruin the, the time of worship right now in the preaching of God's Word just by getting up and like acting crazy with their tongue. Right? You just start yelling about You start making noise. At least for a time, you've caused an utter distraction. There's power in the tongue. Men were fanning the flames of Saul's envy and jealousy and hatred of David. There's power in the tongue. Doubtless, there could have been individuals who perhaps could have sought to extinguish that flame, but they didn't. And I think it's important for us to think that throughout the course of our lives, there's only so many words that you will be able to speak this side of eternity. There's different renderings um, you can find. I haven't done a deep dive to know what the a- actual average is of words that are spoken by men and women throughout the course of a given day. I've seen a bunch of examples. I've seen some that seem way too low and I've seen some that seem way too high. I've seen some disparities between men and women that seem way too large. Like men only talk this much and women talk this much. I've seen the kind of happy uh, middle ground, so to speak, saying that the average man speaks a little less than 16,000 words a day and the average woman speaks more than 16,000 words a day. So you can nuance that however you want. But if you think about that, every day you're going to say a certain amount of words. Today, you're going to say a certain amount of words. Throughout the course of your life, the Lord knows there is a measured amount of words that you're going to speak. And perhaps today, if afresh, you by the grace of God purpose with your mouth not to transgress, then the percentage of those words that are stewarded for the glory of God and the good of men and women will go up. And that's a great way to look at your words. It's a stewardship with which you've been entrusted. It's for a short time, this side of eternity. They'll be speaking on the other side of eternity, but for this side of eternity, let us take great care to make sure we use our words wisely for the building up of others and purpose with our tongues not to transgress. In verse 4, David continued to make the case for his integrity. He says, concerning the works of men, essentially saying with regards to human actions and the things that men do, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. So God's word searched David's heart, such as the implication of God searching David, at least part of it. But God's word also directed David. By the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Right? Psalm 119, the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's an old saying that you'll often hear preachers reference that goes something like this. This book, speaking of the Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. So you'll often hear, that's a great phrase, I don't know who originally said it, otherwise I would credit them with it, but I don't know, but it's a great phrase. And it's a biblical idea, because the idea is right here in the text. By your word, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Now, when David says here, he's here that he's been kept from the paths of the destroyers, speaking of ones that are wicked and bloodthirsty and violent, maybe, maybe he has Saul in view here as though to say, by your word, I haven't done to Saul what he's seeking to do to me. You could look at 1 Samuel 24 for an example, when David had a great opportunity to kill Saul, and yet he felt his conscience pierced and his heart pierced when he had but a a piece of Saul's garment. He's like, look, I have, by your word, been kept from the paths of the destroyer. I'm not going to go down those violent paths. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. He was kept from that. In verse 5, David writes, Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip, or, perhaps better rendered, my steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I love the idea of verse 5 being rendered as a prayer. Uh, I love the idea of that. And and there is that possibility, but I think, Contextually, and you'll see this in the other translations, the latter rendering that I gave you better fits with the context. That this is David working out his argumentation before the Lord, making his case for his integrity. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So again, he's making a case for his integrity. Now just as a quick note, if an Old Testament saint like David could say that, doubtless that New Testament Christians can find themselves in situations where they can say the same thing too. I mean, sometimes we can be so acquainted with our fallenness that we can make excuse for all kinds of sinfulness when we are nonetheless, as Christians, not just pastors, but as Christians, we're called to be blameless. I think that's a good reminder. If David could speak that way and pray that way, such should be the aim of all of us in our dealings in this life, though we know we will not be perfect and we will need to continue to confess our sins to God. So I don't think this was a prayer here. At least that doesn't fit with the context as well as the statements would. But in Psalm 119, verse 133, the psalmist said, direct or establish my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. It's a great reminder to not only keep yourself from temptation's path, but to pray that God would keep you from temptation's path. So in this verse, you kind of get the idea that David's saying, I've been kept from temptation's path, making a case for my integrity. But in Psalm 119, verse 33, we have a clear example of the psalmist basically saying, would you keep me from temptation's path? Would you uphold me? Now we see David, assuming verse 5 wasn't a prayer, we see David return to prayer, particularly a prayer for protection. He says, verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. That is a precious verse right here. They all are, but there's something uh, to be noted about this that I think is especially precious to us. David called upon God. Why? What's the argumentation here? For you will hear me. It's a big thing nowadays. Maybe it's been a big thing for many days for people to have gratitude journals. For people to say, hey, it's just a great exercise to help one's mind to be appreciative. So rather than being complaining, whether you're a Christian or not, have a gratitude journal. But one of the problems with that is that if you have a gratitude journal and you're saying that you're grateful every day for such and such a thing, that's good. good, it's better to be grateful than complaining, but there's a big problem if you don't know to whom you are grateful. And David knew to whom he was grateful, and David knew that this one heard him. He wasn't just like somebody saying, I'm praying, I'm saying thank you or help, and I don't know to whom I'm saying it. He knew to whom he was saying. He says, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. I know I have access to you. I know I have this line of communication. That's why I call upon you. I know that you hear. And I think the flames of fervency would be be bolstered if we take into consideration the fact that our prayers are indeed heard by God. That we have a God who listens. That we have a God who hears. There's a story that um, Charles Spurgeon told. And he ended the story, and I'll tell you the story in in a moment. But he ended the story by saying, All the infidels in the world could not shake her conviction that there is a God that heareth and answereth the supplications of His people. He had told a story that one day at the church where he had served for so long, uh, there was a woman who came to him at the end of service. She was joined by two of her neighbors. She had thought that Spurgeon somehow knew of her situation because as he preached the word, so much of it applied to her situation. So she came and she was with two neighbors. She told the situation to Spurgeon. Spurgeon was like, I didn't know anything about her situation as he recalled the story, but apparently the word of God was speaking to her. She told him how her husband had deserted her. In fact, he had left for another country. So she was brought to church that day. She told it to Spurgeon. And then he said, essentially, there's nothing else for us to do but kneel down and pray for the immediate conversion of your husband. So they did it. They prayed. When he had got up from praying, he told the woman, he said, Do not fret about the matter. I feel sure your husband will come home and that he will yet become connected with our church. So she went away, and as he recalls, he basically had forgotten all about her. So I'm assuming that she didn't show up at service the next week and the week after that and so on. But she did come back sometime after with the neighbors and with a man that was her husband. And as she came and spoke to Spurgeon, as they kind of compared notes, as it were, they came to find that on the very day that they had prayed, While that man was on a ship headed to another country, he had come into contact or come into possession of one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons. He read the sermon and then he repented and professed faith in Christ and he made his way back to his wife. And I think as the story goes to observe his calling there. And I just love the end of it. The end of it is no one, no infidel, nobody could tell this woman That there is not a God who hears and answers the supplications of His people. Now, I'm not saying that all your prayers will be, you know, answered in such a way like that. But regardless of whether you get immediate answers to prayer, regardless of whether the answers are no or wait or maybe or yes, you have to have the conviction that this verse talks about. That there's a God who hears you. And you know that He hears you. Look at the language. Look at the earnestness. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. You know, something that is good to do privately would not be good to do corporately is just to examine the earnestness of your prayer life. You know, corporately, you just appreciate the beauty of saints praying in whatever tone they pray, at whatever volume they pray. But privately, it's good to periodically just take note of the earnestness of your prayers. You know, sometimes you might find yourself just saying the prayers in a kind of monotone way and you say, I don't know, but something feels off in my heart. Don't get me wrong, the volume of your voice, the cadence of your voice, is not a perfect indicator of where your heart is. But sometimes it can be a decent indicator of where your heart is. And there's a sense of urgency here that is joined to true faith. I call to you because I know your answer. you answer. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Well, David, as we know, didn't want God just to hear him. He wanted God to deliver him, and we see that in verse 7. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O oh, you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. So if verse 6 told us our God is a God who hears, verse 7 reminds us that our God is a God who saves. He's a God who saves. David begins by saying, "Show your marvelous loving kindness." Alec Motier could renders this as possibly, "Show your marvelous, show how marvelous is your committed love." That word for loving kindness is the Hebrew word that speaks of God's covenant faithfulness, his loving loyalty. Notice here that this loving kindness is not measly or moderate. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. You think of the song that we sing, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. It's not measly grace, it's not moderate grace, it's marvelous grace. How marvelous is it? It exceeds our sin and our guilt. You want to get a better understanding of how great the grace of God is? Take note of how great your sin is. And if you could see a little bit better how great your sin is, you don't stop there and just say, wow, I am a horrible sinner. No, you continue and you say, I have a great Savior because His grace is greater than my sin. It's marvelous grace. Oh, you who save those who trust in you. There's that word trust again. And as we've been going through the Psalms, we know that that word speaks of taking refuge in one. You save those who take refuge in you. What is generally true with respect to physical safety is always true when it comes to trusting God and finding refuge in the gospel. Here we have a little bit of a reminder of the biblical paradigm. Be assured today that if anybody would come to God for refuge, particularly the refuge of forgiveness of sins, he saves all of those who put their trust in him. What does it look like to put their to put one's trust in the living God and his gospel? It looks like putting trust in the person and work of his son. He saves all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Everyone, I don't know what you've done, I don't know how long the list of your sins are, but I know they're long. You may think of them as moderate, but let me assure you, they're long. Longer than you could imagine. If you had to do a research paper and I gave you all month to work on it, to record for me in great detail the comprehensive nature of all the sins that you've committed during your life, you could not do it. You would only get a small percentage of the ways in which you have rebelled against God. You'd basically scratch the the surface of the things that you know, yet alone the things you do not know. So I don't know all that you've done, but God does. And he's willing to forgive all of your sins when you come to his son and you say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of God who died for my sins and rose from the grave. He saves all who trust him. If you believe the word of God, then you believe Jesus is the only way. To not believe Jesus is the only way and to not believe Jesus' work is sufficient is to make God out to be a liar. It's to say, you have lied. There are other ways. You have lied. I am good enough. To believe the gospel is to say, your word is true. There is no other way. And the work of your son is sufficient. And he saves all who put their trust in him. Now, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, not all the time in the Old Testament, even as it isn't all the time in the New Covenant either, but oftentimes, God does deliver his people physically, right? That's the context here. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. David knew that experience many times throughout the course of his life. And not only David, but those who were with him. Again, we get a little bit of a glimpse into David's situation. He had people who were rising up against him. More about that as we get into the latter verses. Verse 8 reads, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. A beautiful verse in more ways than one. First, the structure of this verse is beautiful. It's a Hebrew chiastic structure. Um, just simply meaning simply meaning that if you were to look at it in the Hebrew, you have those verbs beginning, um, beginning and ending, kind of bracketing what's being said here. you got keep me at the beginning and hide me at the end. And right in the middle, in the Hebrew, you have these two beautiful metaphors. Keep me, keep me, as the apple of your eye. As the apple of your eye. Now when David says that here, he's speaking of the pupil of one's eye. When you hear in biblical language the apple of one's eye, you're thinking of the pupil of one's eye. And you and I do well to protect our pupils. right? If somebody gets near to your face, right? after service, if somebody's like a super close talker and they're coming near to your face, you're going to blink and you're probably going to back up. You instinctively know I, this, is, this needs to be protected here. I, I need to have a certain distance here from this or that or from whatever it might be. Keep me as, 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 the, as the way in which people protect their pupils. Protect me as the apple of your eye. Using this beautiful anthropomorphism, speaking of God in human language. Keep me as the apple of your eye. But then he also says, and we see that second metaphor, which is also beautiful. That metaphor, used in other places in the scripture as well, even as this metaphor is, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. As Dr. Barrick notes, the picture is rather clear of a large bird protecting her little ones. So as a large bird would keep the little ones under her? And it speaks of both warmth and care and also protection. Would you keep me like that? And I love thinking this. This is the the third thing I would like to call your attention to. Not only the chiastic structure, not only the beauty of the metaphors, but again, so that you would see life through this lens, especially when guided by the scriptures. That you would see these creaturely realities and say part of the reason, maybe the main part of the reason, why these creaturely realities exist is to teach us something about God. So the way in which we take care to protect the pupils of our eyes, it's a great way for us to be reminded of the way in which God so cares for his people. When you see a mother hen put her wings around her chicks, one of the reasons why that exists, perhaps even the main reason that exists and that happens in this world, is so that we might learn a little bit more about God and the relationship of his people to him. The compassion of God. We think of how Jesus even used this language in Matthew 23 when speaking to Jerusalem. How he longed to gather her as a hen gathers her chicks, but they were not willing. His creaturely reality is speaking to dynamics and attributes of God that are so precious for us to observe and worship in light of. This is also a prayer you could pray, by the way. You could pray this prayer in verse 8. And now we see what David needed protection from. Verses 9 through 12. From the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. So no wonder why he's praying with such fervor. He has the wicked who were oppressing him. Shaddad is the verse here, is the word here in the Hebrew. It means to destroy or to ruin or to deal violently with. It's a very strong word. From the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Who surround me. So it speaks to the urgency of his situation. David went on to describe his enemies, verses 10 through 12. They have closed up their fat, and the word hearts is italicized in the New King James translation because it's perhaps implied. They have closed up their fat, implication hearts, with their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a lion, like a young lion lurking in secret places. Now, the beginning of verse 10 might take you by surprise. And you might say, whoa, was David making some sort of like snide remark against his enemies? No, when he said they have closed up their fat and the implication is their fat hearts The idea is essentially that these individuals, in contrast to David, who again I think was likely on the run during this time with meager provisions. In contrast to that, these individuals, at least generally speaking, were prosperous. They were spoiled by their prosperity and they had become, as the text says, fat what is that main implication? You could look at 30, the Deuteronomy 32, 15. The implication is they become self-indulgent. But that's not the end of this equation. They were prosperous. They had become fat. The idea being they, they were self-indulgent. But the implication, as noted in the word hearts, is that they had also become callous. They had closed up their fat Hearts. They shut the doors of their hearts, as it were. They had no room for sympathy. They shut up the doors of sympathy. No sympathy was coming through or going out, especially amidst their prosperity. And that's something that prosperity can do. Prosperity can make people complacent, and prosperity can make people callous. It's a very dangerous thing when somebody is prosperous. And it leads to, to use language from verse 10, a fat heart. Some of you are probably familiar with the, uh, with the medical identification, non-alcoholic, fatty liver disease. And the problem is, if somebody has a fatty liver, is that there's more fat on the organ than there should be and when there is fat on the organ then the organ doesn't function the way it's supposed to be as a consequence the organ becomes damaged and so on it doesn't function properly and you might say that when you have a fallen unregenerate heart enclosed in fat the consequence is exceedingly sinful callousness towards God yes and also towards men that's what David is talking about when he says here They've prospered and they've become complacent and callous. Callousness wasn't their only problem. Conceit was their problem as well. Second half of verse 10. With their mouths, they speak proudly. So their mouths were essentially delivery systems to display their pride. And mouth and speech will often do that, display the pride of a person's heart. Verse 11. When David wrote, they have now surrounded us in our steps... The idea is that wherever we go, there they are. They're surrounding us. This might speak to a situation in 1 Samuel 23 where Saul and his army was surrounding David and his people. Then he goes on and describes his enemies like predators. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. One imagines an animal stalking its prey with a kind of focused attention. Look at the language. They set their eyes. So there's focused attention. They're preparing to pounce. In fact, you look at the text and he likens them to lions eager to pounce upon their prey. It speaks to a kind of greedy ferocity of David's foes. They weren't looking for a debate. They were looking to tear him into pieces and they longed for that moment. They were like young lions lurking in secret places. So they were covert in the way they went about their business to bring David to death. That brings us to one more verse filled with petitions, uh, to a psalm filled with petitions. And we see um, Psalm 13, in which itself is filled with petitions. David writes, Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. A quick note here I think is helpful. When we're studying through psalms, and especially when you're hearing the preaching and teaching of psalms, one of the mistakes that can happen is that we could look at verses or certain um, portions of verses as though they're like slides, right? And you just take one slide at a time. Like you might remember that red toy that like, a lot of us maybe had as kids, the View Master, right? And it's like you press it down, like one slide, and you press it down, and there's another slide. You don't want to look at verse 13 like you're looking at it like through the, the View Master, Oh, there's just there's that verse. Let me dissect that verse. You need to see it in its panorama perspective, because you can really appreciate and better understand verse thirteen when you don't forget what we just read in verses ten through twelve. Arise, O Lord. Okay, so David's, David has his enemies around him. They're like lions ready to pounce. And he's calling out to God with that divine warrior language that we've become already accustomed to seeing in the Psalms. We've seen that quite a few times already. Arise, rise up. And what is he asking God to do? Confront him. In other words, although they are preparing to pounce on me, would you intersect them? See, remember when David stood between Goliath and Israel? As it were, it's as though if the Philistines and Goliath were going to get to the people of Israel, Goliath had to go through David. Well, David is in a situation right now, and he knows that if his enemies are going to get to him, the only hope that he has is that Yahweh would stand in between them. And that's what he's hoping. He's saying, confront him, intersect them, cast him down. So the the, the imagery, if you're going to kind of put this together, is either pre-pounce, to use that animal imagery, or mid-pounce. As they are about to pounce upon me, may you take those ones and bring them down. Cast them down. Pin them down, as it were. May they no longer be crouching, but cowering. And deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Here is the hoped-for result of God's intervention. David's ransomed life. If you would allow me, before we look at the last two verses, I quickly want to make another gospel application in this moment, as it came to my mind in preparing. When you see David say, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, I just want to ask this question. Is it amazing to think that Jesus delivered the lives of wicked ones like you and I by coming under the sword, if you will, of divine judgment? Just as I look at this, David's saying, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. As a Christian in the New Covenant, I can't help but think of how me, a wicked one, was delivered from the wrath of God by the Son of God, the righteous one, coming under the sword, if you will, of divine wrath. So now we get to the last two verses of the psalm, amazingly instructive for us, helpful and hopeful. With your hand from men, O Lord, O Yahweh, from the men of this world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. Picking up in the second line of this verse, notice he describes these individuals as men of the world who have their portion in this life. He's describing people for whom the end all and be all of their existence is found in this present age. In this world, that's to use language from 1 John is passing away. Their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, their longings are all rooted here. They're all rooted under the sun. That's how these people are identified. It's like those that Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 3. Those who set their minds upon earthly things. Philippians 3, 19. So again, they're, they're, they're fixed upon this earth. Heaven has as much impact on their daily living as Oz has on yours. And I'm assuming it doesn't have much. <laughs> just not thinking about it. Because they're like, I just know what I'm dreaming for. I know what I'm wanting. I know what I'm hoping for. And it's all under the sun. It's all under the sun. But look at this. David describes these men as those whose belly God fills with hidden treasure. Now, some, some regard this as a possible petition. But taking it the way it is here we could see that these individuals are beneficiaries of God's grace. That they receive good things throughout their lives. Perhaps it calls to mind the account of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. And you might remember when that rich man was found in a place of torment in Luke 16. um, That it was told to him by Abraham, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus' evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So the, the idea is their bellies are full. You, you set your hope on this life. That's all you wanted. And it's as though in both a measure of common grace and in a measure of judgment, gave them what they wanted. It's interesting because it's kind of both. In common grace, here, this is what you want. I'll fill your belly with it. You, want, you have no hopes beyond this life. I'll fill your life with prosperity. And it's, it's common grace, and you're like, well, thanks be to God. It's common grace, but they're not thanking God. So in that sense, it also turns out to be judgment. It's as though they're heaping up wrath for the day of wrath, spurning God's grace towards them. But he's nonetheless in that common grace kind of way, gracious towards them. The final lines of verse 14, they are satisfied with children. It could also be understood as they are full of children, and they leave the rest of their possession for their babes. The idea being, they are full and satisfied with large families and large possessions. They're satisfied with children and the opportunity and the prospect of perpetuating their name. That, in this case, is the apex of their hope. I have prosperity, I have possessions, I have family, I have some measure of perpetuity as I leave it unto them. That's in contrast to David, and by God's grace, it's in contrast to us who are in Christ Jesus. David says in verse 15, As for me. It's a way that David is setting himself in contrast to them, to the men of this world. As for me. As opposed to them whose hope and the apex of their longings and desires and joys are founded in this life. As for me. I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So David, David wasn't envious of their prosperity. He's contrasting their situation and their longings. So they may be prosperous, and David likely at this point was not. But he's contrasting more specifically here the longings. They have earthly ones. David had a heavenly one. David's hope and the apex of David's hope for happiness was in seeing God and being found in the likeness of God when he awoke in his likeness. That is a blessed hope. Is that your greatest hope? You could tune your heart right now. If it were an instrument, you just take the knob, right? Sometimes you got you to take your mind and you just want to tune it rightly. Is that your greatest hope? Think about the joy that you have when you see the faces of people that you love. I think one of the best things about serving in pastoral ministry is being up here each week and looking at the faces to whom you get to preach. Because it's not like strangers are showing up each week. There'll be some people, there'll be strangers first time they're here, and that's great, and that's, that's awesome. But you're preaching to a family. You're preaching to the, the people of God. Think about the joy you have when you see the face of loved ones. I know if I just look over here and I see Zachary's face or if I see Lauren and Thea's face and all of a sudden like just there's joy that lights up in me as I just look at their faces. And if you were to imagine right, the height of your joy when you see the faces of people that you love, it can't even compare to the height of joy that will be experienced when you see the face of God. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When that moment comes and we are no longer looking through a mirror or a glass dimly, but we see perfectly, face to face, the glory of God unobstructed, communion with God unhindered, such is the pleasant lot of every believer who is in Christ Jesus. To think of beholding the Savior. To think that when we see him, First John chapter 3, verse 2, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. To think of what Jesus said concerning the angels who behold the face of his Father in heaven. And to think that whatever that means, such is the lot that awaits us. It is the apex of the reason for which we have been created. To behold God and to bring Him such glory as we enjoy Him forever. I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And the word awake there um, brings to mind thoughts of resurrection, right? And we know that we'll receive our glorified bodies. In that moment when the resurrection happens. And 1 John 3, 2 says that when we see him, speaking of Christ, we shall be like him. Like when he comes, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. So you can look at that verse, the last line of this, and I guess at least two ways. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Because there's a sense in which when the people of God are absent from the body and in the presence of the Lord, they are, to use language from Hebrews, spirits of just men and women made perfect. So you can liken death to a brief moment of sleeping and awaking, if you will. You close your eyes, and all of a sudden you open your eyes, as it were, and there you are. Where? I don't exactly know how it, how it plays itself out. But I know on the other end of that you're going to be seeing God. And then you think of the awaking that happens with the resurrection when the spirits of believers are joined to their bodies and then you're in the likeness of God. And at least the the redemptive plan has reached its climax at that point and you have the glorified body which has been prepared for you. What an amazing lot that awaits for the believer. And I think in seeing that, we should be reminded that our hopes should always be placed more on the eternal than the temporal. You have, if you will, very solid joys when your hopes are focused on that which is eternal, unshakable, reserved in heaven for you are all of those blessed hopes, the greatest of which is seeing God and being found in his likeness. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for yet again another uh, amazing portion of scripture that we have the honor of walking through. Thank you for all of the um, milk and meat found therein. Thank you for all the nourishment and the mind renewal that comes as a consequence of beholding your truth, Lord. May, Father, by your grace, you find us, even as David was, directed by your word. And by your word, may we, by your grace, keep ourselves from the path of the destroyer, from the temptations of our own flesh to set our hopes upon earthly things and temporal things. And may we, by your grace, grow in the grace of longing for that moment where we get to behold your face and we get to look into the face of our Savior. Hallelujah. Oh, we thank you for him, Lord. And thank you that all of this has been secured for us by your grace in sending him and by The great measure of love demonstrated in His death for us. So Lord, if there would be anybody in this place who hasn't come to that place today, I pray, Lord, that in light of the gospel calls that were made in this teaching, I pray that You would bring them to a place of trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You save all of those who put their trust in You when they believe in the gospel of Your Son by Your grace. And Father, for all of us, Lord, who are in Christ, May you help us, Lord, to grow in the grace of setting our eyes upon things above and not upon earthly things, to look, as it were, at your right hand, to behold the Savior and to long afresh for his coming, even this day. And may you find us faithful in the waiting, comforting and building up one another with truths like these in the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.